Leading Matters with Joel Caparelli. Welcome to another episode of Leading Matters. Today I have a, a best-selling author with me. His name is Kevin Cruz. I'm going to give you a more of an introduction when we jump into the episode, but he has a new book out right now, and it's called 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management. And, you know, when I first asked Kevin to join me, he, um, and the reason I asked him is he did, does quite a bit on employee engagement. He's written two or three books on that topic, and they're great. And, you know, he, he said, listen, I, you know, I'm really talking about this time management stuff. I'm not sure if it aligns with what you're talking about on Leading Matters. But after I read the book, because uh, he gave me a copy to read, I thought it was an absolute must-hear topic. And you're going to find out why in the broadcast here. It runs a little long because he uh, indulged me enough to stay with me beyond the typical 20 minutes. And I think what you'll find out here is that, listen, right out of the gate, you know, Kevin talks about leaders wanting to free up some of their time so they could manage some of the nuance that's necessary of leaders to make sure their employees are connected, that their culture is not just uh, words but a reality, that the mission and the vision of the company is reflective of who that company is and who they want to be. So one of the secrets to do that is to free up some time. And the, the book is fantastic. It, it reads like a... Like a um, like a manual on different things you can do to improve some time management skills. And I actually think, and I asked Kevin at the end, that these can be deployed across the organization as a mechanism to improve engagement, to improve vision, to get people more, um, you know, to, to have them feel more aligned with the purpose of the company. So listen, always uh, since I've talked to Ryan Estes, and I want you to go back and listen to that one. That's uh, definitely a great one for you to listen to. I like Ryan's idea of take action now, a TAN plan. So what's the TAN plan, the take action now plan after you listen to Kevin Cruz? And I think it's this. I think, you know, what are the three major holes in your productivity today. Everyone has something. There's always room for improvement of productivity. So I think write those down first. What are the three major challenges in your personal productivity? And then in the next column, write what all of the possible and potential impacts are to your ability to lead, to manage, and to drive the objectives of what you're doing as a company. So um, again, I would, I would take a look at those things, and I think that's your action plan. Where are your productivity gaps? And what is the impact of those gaps to your ability to lead and to manage and to execute? Okay, let's go ahead and jump into the episode with Kevin Cruz. Kevin Cruz is a New York Times bestselling author and an Inc. 500 startup founder. His newest book, The 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management, is based on some groundbreaking research into the habits of uh, the folks such as Olympic athletes, straight-A students, over 200 entrepreneurs, and seven billionaires, including Mark Cuban. And, and listen, I have to say it's, it's really an incredible resource. It's, it's really well-organized. It's packed with some practical examples. It's very applicable to really whoever you are, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a Fortune 1000 CEO. You're going to gain value out of Kevin's take on time management. I'm thankful to not only have read it, but I'm also really thankful to have Kevin on Leading Matters today. So, Kevin, before we get started, just thanks so much for, for taking time out of your day to join me. Oh, thanks, Joel. I'm honored to be here and uh, thrilled to, to share stuff with your audience. 
Oh, great. So listen, I'm going to jump right in because I love the book. And, you know, for me, you know, look, I'm embarrassed to say procrastination is probably one of my biggest obstacles I suffer from, right? So, you know, before I, pick, I picked it up, I have to admit I was, I was curious how you took on the subject matter. Um, and I'll get to procrastination in a minute. But I'm, I'm really, you spent so much time in your previous uh, couple of publications about employee engagement. Um, and I, I'm really wondering, look, I think after looking at the book and reading it, I get the connection now. It seems like a logical next uh, uh, topic for you to cover. But I'm curious if, if I just am reading into that or if there was some intent there. And if you could just help uh, our, re- our listeners kind of see where time management and ordering our day might have something to do and connect to employee engagement. Yeah, it's a great place to start, Joel. I mean, you know, by way of background, I, <laughs> I like to say that I'm a reformed serial entrepreneur. So for Almost 25 years, I was starting and building and selling uh, different startups, different tech companies, and was fortunate and had some success in that area. And so uh, a lot of what I speak about is the keys to business success that I saw around leadership and engagement, just as you just as you describe. I mean, you know, I think anybody who's running a business knows that it's all about the talent. But as I um, sort of tried to beat that drum, continue to beat that drum, you know, so many executives, so many entrepreneurs, small business owners were saying, you know, this sounds great, but how can I be, how can I spend time being a better leader? How can I invest time into the talent side of things when I'm just getting my butt kicked every day, you know, from my to-do list? There's just never enough time. And that resonated with me because back when I was young and dumb, I mean, I tried to win through brute force. You know, five days a week wasn't enough, so I'd work seven. Eight hours a day wasn't enough, so I'd work 16. Uh, you know, I started skipping meals and, and sleep, and, you know, God forbid there's never any time for exercise. And that was actually when I performed at my worst, and those companies failed when I was in my early 20s. And it was then that I started to take a personal interest in the habits of, you know, entrepreneurs, self-made millionaires, highly productive people so that I could get better myself. And I'm a slow learner, but over two decades, I would just adopt habit after habit, stack them up on top of each other. And uh, this year I decided, you know, my passion project, my book for this year that I'm going to write is going to be about the habits of ultra-productive people. And not just, you know, my own stories. I've got, I think, some credibility in the area. But I was curious. I mean, how how does Mark Cuban manage so many companies and find the time to show up on Shark Tank all the time? You know, how do these solopreneurs and small business entrepreneurs, you know, juggle their businesses and be doing podcasts like you're doing and writing books and all these partnerships? So that was the quest. I mean, and it was fun. I mean, I spoke to, as you said, over 200 highly successful people and just told them, you know, each one it was, give me your number one secret to extreme productivity. Give me your number one secret to time management. How do you get it all done and stay balanced? And uh, to me, you know, it's important, as you said, for, for really anyone, you know, time management is really life management. But back to, to leadership and business owners, I mean, we cannot be present and mindful and leading in the right way if we don't have our schedule under control, if we don't feel in control ourselves. You know, we're all running around crazy busy, overworked and overwhelmed. And if we're in that place ourselves, it's going to be that's a tough spot to lead from. What is interesting to me is that how you focus in on the leader to be able to free them up to do some of the work that you described in some of your earlier works, right? And in particular, it struck me that in Me Too We, you talk about 
the three drivers of employee engagement, and uh, really they were, I think if I remember them correctly, they were growth, recognition, and trust. You know, and, and I really have to tell you that I, I can't help but to feel as though productivity that comes from these techniques and these secrets that you've mined from all these resources will improve our ability to execute on all three of those. I mean, is that, do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I mean, I think again, it's, you, as you mentioned, we did we looked at uh, survey research from 10 million workers in 150 countries. You know, who's feeling engaged at work, who isn't, and why. And the results, as you said, it's it's most of how we feel about work. First of all, comes from our relationship with our boss, our, who our leader is, and we need three buttons to get pushed. You know, growth. We want to learn new things and be you know advancing. Recognition. We want to feel appreciated. And trust is about, like, trust in the future, future confidence. And so there's two levels here. I mean, one, the leader needs to be, to, to be mindful of, hey, I'm not just a manager of tasks. I'm a leader of people. And that requires me to make the space and have the energy to work, you know, with Joel on what his career path plans are, to, to make sure I recognize Joel and let him know how much I appreciated those extra hours or that extra achievement he had. I need to, to remember and spend time with Joel talking about the future plans of the company and how he aligns uh, to them. And then interestingly enough, you know, if you activate those growth recognition and trust buttons, if you're pressing those buttons on your direct reports, your team members, that gives them energy. You know, that gives them engagement, a feeling of engagement, and increases their level of productivity at work as well. They give discretionary effort. So by increasing your own productivity and mindfulness, that activates engagement triggers in your entire team, which increases their productivity as well. So there's really a compounding effect on these techniques. You know, I, while you're, we're talking about that, you know, I, I talk to a lot of leaders and business leaders on Leading Matters, and... You know, I'm usually picking out companies that are doing quite well and have some kind of dramatic positive change. And I think it's inherent in who these folks are that, listen, leadership in and of itself is a challenging task, right? And this is what I liked how you started the entire secret discussion off, right? Because you force your reader, and if, you know, I'm not I'm thinking there's any spoilers here, so it was hopefully encourage people to, to pick up the book here, but you force the reader to, to kind of, you know, take their pulse for a second, like literally feel their heartbeat and, and just count out three or four heartbeats, and you do it to underscore the point that you have 1,440 minutes in a day and that you'll never get those those back. Can you share with us, because, and let me go back to the leadership, right, that, that what you just said earlier says if leaders are so tied up in their in their to-do list, as you said earlier, that they might miss the opportunity to naturally engage with their workforce and miss the the idea of purpose of, of who they are and who their company is. So with that in mind, how do we begin to shift our time mindset the way you describe it? And how do successful people go about prioritizing time really above anything else? Because you, you make it quite clear listen, there's lots of important things that we have in life, but time is probably should be at the successful people, you say, make time their, their top priority. Yeah, I mean, that was the very first thing that jumped out at me. I mean, ultra-productive people, ultra-successful people, they truly know, and I mean, deep in their bones, that time is our most valuable asset. I mean, you know, a lot of people, I mean, just think about how much we value money, but you can lose money and make more of it. We're always making more money every day, every week, every year. Time, as you said, I mean, Every second, you know, your heart beats, you're never getting those heartbeats back. You know, every minute that ticks away, every every day that you squander, 
you're never getting those back. And not to be too much of a downer about this, but, you know, anyone that reaches, you know, middle age, I mean, we know that the only moment guaranteed is now. You know, there are no guarantees beyond that. And so let's make the most of them. I mean, we're going to, you know, you don't just want to live life as a spectator. You don't want to let life happen to you. You want to seize it and control it. And these ultra-productive people really feel that way. And, you know, an analogy I use is people will naturally say, yeah, yeah, I get it, time's important. But if you really understand that it's more important than money, I mean, we wouldn't let people, you know, we don't leave our cash just sitting around in piles around us for people to come and take. You know, we wouldn't even let our friends come and reach into our, our wallets and take out a $100 bill. And yet all the time we let we give our, our minutes away or we let people steal them. And, you know, the classic workplace example I use, it's one I faced when I was an entrepreneur, was the never-ending, you know, knocks on the door of, uh, hey, Joel, you got a minute, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's we're all supposed to have open door policies, we're all supposed to be helping each other, but when that gets out of control, and of course it's never a minute, one minute is five minutes, or five minutes turns into 30 minutes, or whatever it is, um, every time someone does that, though, they are interjecting their priorities onto your calendar, onto your agenda. Now, it got so bad for me, I did this thing, Joel. It's a little controversial. I just grabbed a blank piece of paper and a, a magic marker and scrawled that number, 1440, and I taped it onto the outside of my office door. That's all. That's all I did. Then people started coming, knock, knock. Kevin, you got a minute? Sure, come on in. Inevitably, they would notice this, you know, scrawled 1440 on my door. And they're like, oh, hey, Kevin, what, what's that all about? And I wouldn't make it about them. I would just say, oh, there's only 1,440 minutes in a day. We're never getting those back. You know, there's so much I want to do with my time. It's just a reminder to me not to waste a single minute. That's all I would ever say. And all of a sudden, a lot of those people, you know, about half of them would say, okay, um, you know what? I know we're meeting on Monday, so never mind. I'll just bring this up next week. Or they would tell me what their question was or what their problem was, but they would literally do it in a minute and walk out the door. And very quickly, I mean, I'm sure people thought I was weird or grumbling that I was being mean or didn't want to talk to them anymore, but very quickly, I that the, the language changed in the office. People would start to talk about 1440, or they would, you know, some would say, got a minute. And then the first reaction instead of yes is, is it important or can it wait until this afternoon? Is it important or can we do it during our 4 o'clock meeting? So people started to push back on that. And, again, it can be, you know, you could be a stay-at-home parent, and this still counts. You know, if you're spending time with your child or you're spending time, you know, painting the bedroom, whatever you've decided is important in your life at that moment, are you going to let the knock on the door, the phone ring, the Facebook status message throw you off track and steal a minute of your time. So ultra-productive people, great leaders, I mean, they feel this. They know there's nothing more important than time, and they really protect those minutes. So this leads me right into what I said earlier about one of my greatest challenges, which is procrastination, right? Which is never something we get up in the morning and say, gee, I think I'll procrastinate a bunch of tasks today, right? And I, I really found your take interesting on it because you talked about uh, battling your future self. And uh, I want you to describe that in a minute. But the one anecdote that I liked the best was the woman that, uh, I forget her name in the book, that didn't want to eat the fries. So she would pour an entire you know, bottle of salt on the fries so she wouldn't eat them. So she saved herself from her five-minute future self. So talk to me about this idea of battling your future self. Yeah, there's, you know, I think I cover some like six procrastination, you know, how to how to cure procrastination. There's like six tactics you can use in the book. But my favorite is that one called time travel. And 
what it what it gets to is this psychological phenomenon that humans are time inconsistent. We have a a present bias. And so what this means is, you know, today if I'm at the grocery store, I decide, you know, I, I want to be healthy. I'm going to buy all this lettuce because I'm going to eat salads all week. You know, I, I stock up on, on salad, uh, on lettuce. But then a week from now, I'm throwing out the rotting, you know, disgusting salad in the bottom of my refrigerator, and I never ate a single salad. It's why we uh, we'll so often buy books, you know, we'll, we'll see something online and we'll snatch it up or in the bookstore and, oh yeah, I want to learn about that. And then it just sits on our bookshelf and never gets open. You know, in the present, we think we're going to do something in the future or that we should do something in the future. But then when the future arrives, that version of ourselves doesn't want to do it. You know, it's why we order the treadmill or the exercise equipment, you know, from an infomercial and then we end up hanging our laundry on it because we never actually use it. So the way you solve that is by literally saying, okay, I know that my future self is an evil person who's going to sabotage me. I mean, I know what my goals are. I know what I want to accomplish. I know that I want to eat better, eat right, do these, you know, move these uh, barriers at work, and my future self is going to sabotage me. And so you try to outwit your future self. You travel into the future and figure that out. And so uh, one simple example that, that you brought up was this you know, friend who was really concerned about eating healthy. And, uh, you know, she did a couple of things. I think one I didn't even share in the book, which is when we would go out to eat, you know, restaurants give you such big portions in most places that um, what she would do right away, she would tell the waiter, okay, when you bring my food, bring a takeout container and a doggy bag at the same time. And when her food would arrive, she would chop everything in half, put half of it into the take-home, you know, bag and set it by her uh, purse at her feet. So, because she didn't want to do bow, she knew her future self was going to, you know, keep eating. Oh, well, we're still sitting, or, oh, that's really good, or, look, I ate two-thirds. Well, that's not enough to take home. Might as well finish it. She knew her future self was going to sabotage her, so that's how she handled that. When they brought her fries, she would usually order, you know, a, a meal, and instead of fries, it would be a salad. Well, when they brought her fries she would open up the, the salt shaker and just dump the whole thing on top of her fries. Now, she could have just sent it back or something like that, but she knew if she didn't do that right away, the five-minute future self was going to say, well, I'll just have one fry. And then the six-minute future self would be like, that fry was pretty good. I'm just going to have a couple more. And then the 10-minute future self would be like, well, I already ate so many fries. I'm just going to eat the rest of these fries. I can't help it. So she would just destroy the French fries so that her future self couldn't sabotage her. And, you know, it's the same way if you want to uh, – um, you know, my personal problem with procrastination is exercise. And I know, you know, my future self, if I don't exercise immediately when I wake up, well, my future self is going to say, Kevin, you're too busy. Kevin, you've got to return those phone calls. Kevin, you've got that big meeting tomorrow you've got to plan for. You don't have time to exercise. Oh, it's nighttime? Kevin, your kids are home. You better be a good dad and spend time with your kids. So my future self will sabotage me in all those ways. So I know I've got to defeat that future self by saying, all right, alarm clock's going off. I'm going to get out of bed, and I'm going to be stepping on my shorts and a T-shirt and socks and sneakers. I'm going to just put those on. And I've got my bottle of water already sitting there, and I'm jumping on the treadmill. I mean, that's the only way I can get it done. And so, you know, whatever – and, Joe, you're not alone. I mean, 20% of people in surveys say that they have a, a real problem with chronic procrastination where it is impacting, you know, one or more areas of their life. So we all battle this. And, you know, we can try to, to stick to it 
stick to our resolutions and get accountability partners and things like that. And those can help. But really understanding that we have a bias, you know, a time inconsistency, and we must outwit the future self, that's a great way to, to overcome procrastination. You know, Kevin, I wonder, as I'm listening to you talk and as I was reading through the book, um, I thought that a great companion book to yours would be Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit. I'm, I'm curious, did you read The Power of Habit and was had that in any way influence you kind of wanting to put this thing together? I, I definitely read The Power of Habit. As you said, a, a great book. I mean, I, I devour anything I can on, on uh, time, productivity, habits, and, and that's certainly, I and mean, that's probably one of the best ones out there. You know, I don't know that it influenced the overall uh, direction of, of, of the work, but I think what it did really emphasize to me is that, and it's what I saw, it's what I looked for in this project was, you know, what are the habits of highly successful people? What can we do? Because too many people, it'll say, you know, there's a good saying out there that says, success leaves clues. Well, I don't want clues. I don't want to solve a mystery. I want to know what I can do tomorrow. You know, I don't want some philosophical statement, some inspirational statement. I want to know, because listen, Mark Cuban, you know, he wasn't born genetically different than the rest of us. You know, I interviewed the co-founders of Facebook, Groupon, Zynga, you know, all these, all these, you know, entrepreneurs. They don't, they're not superheroes. They don't have a, a magic wand when it comes to time and productivity. They do things that average people don't do. They, they do things at night that average people don't do. So I wanted to know, what are those things? And that's what, what I wanted to craft and what Duhigg says. You know, our, our level of success relates back to the level of our habits, to the little things we do on a consistent basis. And, you know, like, um, I don't know, our grandma's recipe. You know, if she can write it down, we can learn to, to, to replicate it. And the great news about these productivity habits is you don't need all 15 things to bake a perfect cake. Any one can transform your life. Any one can transform your productivity. And so that's where that habits book really had an impact on me. Well, look, I'm glad I asked the question, right? Because for me, I mean, I'd like to Higgs book quite a bit, right? But there it wasn't a lot of practical action in it. I think it was more of a um, kind of a discussion of why and, and what to do on the on the foundational level. But And I think you're right. The, the way the book reads, it, it is exactly like that. You know, I'm, I'm every single step might not be right for me. But there's definitely two or three things just in reading the book, you know, the first time through that I know would make a difference for me. But I want to move into the the impact on corporate culture here, right? Because, you know, I talk a lot about, hey, listen, we have to have mission and purpose and our values have to be much more than placards on the wall. And I thought when I got to the point about this idea of never being done uh, and kind of ingraining that into our – and there's also a progression in the book, right? In other words, if I don't do the blocking and tackling of basic time management, I might never feel comfortable with this idea of – quote-unquote, never being done. So do me a favor. Help the audience understand this idea of never being done, and then tell us about the work hours of some of the people like Sheryl Sandberg and others in the book, how they work literally an eight-hour day uh, in the office. So, you know, how do they make that happen? Yeah, it, it's and this is one where, where I mean, the habits are, are the consistent start and end time, but the mindset is critical. And, you know, habits are behaviors, but behaviors are driven by what we believe. You know, if we believe smoking is going to kill us, we're not going to pick up a cigarette. If we believe smoking makes us look cool, we're going to pick up a cigarette. So it, this is an area where beliefs are critical. And it struck me, I remember, as I was thinking about productivity and time management, when I read an article about uh, President George W. Bush, 
he had a reading, a book reading contest with a member of his staff, and he, uh, George Bush won. He read 52 books a year, a book every single week. Now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, how does the President of the United States have time to read books for pleasure, let alone one every single week? I mean, he's literally got the biggest job on the planet with a ticking time clock on his legacy. You know, every day there's one less day to make the world a better place and to go down as a great president in the history books. You know that there's always more phone calls to return, more memos to read, uh, more fundraising events he could go to, more senators to call and twist their arms. I mean, you know that there's always more to do. How could he do that? And then I read this book um, from from Andrew Grove, who was uh, the founder of Intel, CEO of Intel for a long time. And in his book, uh, uh, he talked about – it's called High Output Management. And he shared about how he gets into work at the same reasonable hour every morning. And he leaves work at the same time every day, and I, I, I think it might have been 6.30, I, I can't remember exactly, but a very reasonable hour. And he said no matter what is going on, he comes in the same time, and he leaves at the same time. And Intel, I mean, when he was there, I mean, you know, they were – they were building billion-dollar factories. They were fighting, you know, chip factories in China that were dumping prices. And I mean, you're running a, a chip company like Intel. You've got a million problems, a million fires, a million things, a million people to answer to. How could he just work a reasonable day like that? And he gave. I mean, I, my life changed when I read this. Andy Grove said it all comes down to the fact that he knows there will always be more to do and always more that can be done. And that's the problem with classic to-do list management. You know, we, we think, oh, put it on the to-do list, prioritize it, and we'll get it done. So we say yes to everything, we have it on the list, and the reality is that list then weighs on us. It's like, uh-oh, all those undone things, I'd better work later, I'd better check email, and I'd better go in on the weekend. And working more hours, you start to – there's diminishing returns. You become less effective. And the reality is because there's always more to do, always more that can be done, in theory, we could work you know, every minute of our lives and still never accomplish everything. And when you really realize that and that becomes your mindset, then it shifts and it says, okay, work is important to me. This company is important to me. My career is important to me. So I will allocate – this many hours a week. And look, you know, there's no judgment. It's up to you, uh, you know, what phase you are in in your life, your career, what's going on. For a lot of people, it's 40 hours a week. For others, it's 50. For some, it might be 60. But the people that I interview, I mean, for most of them, they're saying, I mean, these are entrepreneurs primarily, business owners and others. But even the Olympic athletes, I mean, you know, their life is all about the Olympics. But there are other buckets like spouse, kids, giving back to charity, some me time, health. You know, so so the mindset shifts and all of a sudden, you know, the the entrepreneurs say, "Well, yeah, I'm going to leave at a certain hour because I value time with my kids. I know they're only going to be living with me for so long, so I've got 1 hour to have dinner with my kids every single day of the week, and I'm going to, you know, protect that time. I need an hour for exercise, and I might do it in the morning, I might do it at lunch." But I'm going to put it on my schedule, and, and I'm going to tell my admin to treat it like a doctor's appointment, you know, not to not to put anything on it unless it's a, a, a last-case scenario. So people who don't have this sense, you know, they just – and that's where I was. I mean, I was out of control in my 20s where I just sort of felt this stress of I need to be successful. I need to grow this business. 
more, 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 more. I can do, 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 do. And it leads to, you know, how creative could I have been in that mode? How good of a leader could I have been? How strategic could I have been? And then the worst of all is our personal lives. I mean, you know, how good of a husband could I have been? How good of a father could I have been? So people, the highly productive people, actually work less hours. And there's some cool research studies showing that some of the most productive people, even in large organizations, are the ones that work fewer hours and take more breaks, which is completely counterintuitive. So that's it's good. You know, I like that uh, that research at the end there, right? Because it is counterintuitive. So it's something that we kind of don't even assume is a reality. So it's good that you're shedding some light on it. So let me, Kevin, wrap up with just one last question here, because this whole idea of changing the mindset and really looking at it, you know, completely different from a completely different perspective. I guess you know, I, like I said earlier, we I talk a lot about you know, corporate culture and whatnot, and you've certainly written a lot about engagement and how that impacts a company's culture. Do you think that these uh, secrets that you've packaged up, they certainly help on an individual level. Do you think a leader that, that wants to commit to changing the culture a little bit so people don't feel as though they're being pressured to work 24-7 or whatever, answer emails? You know, a couple of years ago, there was this big thing about, oh, people answering emails in the middle of the night, and, and that says something about your company culture. So if I'm a leader and these things work for me, do you think these uh, like deploying these kind of recommendations out in a, in a tactful, gentle way to the to the workforce would help improve how connected and engaged my workforce becomes? Well, absolutely, absolutely. Because you're right. I mean, you know, for a long time, you know, work-life balance has been a priority in corporations, corporate HR initiatives, and have largely failed. I mean, and, and you know, it's sort of <clears throat> it, it's because. I talk about a work-life blend only because there's just life. We can't bottle up our workplace emotions and leave them on a shelf and then go home. And similarly, we, if we're having problems, severe problems in our home life, we can't just leave those at home as much as we try and, you know, pretend they don't exist when we're at work. I think, you know, this idea of like just limiting hours and hopefully that's enough doesn't work. And I think that the other extreme of the 24-7 emails and calls and all that doesn't work in the long term either. So it's not just about limiting hours. It certainly isn't about just working around the clock, but it's working smarter. Again, these are ultra productive people. You know, these are people that have more problems than, than, you know, most of the rest of us, more things to do. And yet they're using certain techniques, which are, have nothing to do with a to-do list, by the way. Nobody's using a to-do list at this level to get more done in less time. And then because they've allocated, they've invested time into other areas of their life, they feel balanced. You know, the classic problem now is, and again, I speak from experience, it's this yo-yo between stress and guilt. You know, I'm working late in the office and I'm feeling guilty. It's tearing me up inside because I'm not spending time at home or I'm missing my kids, you know, play or soccer game or whatever that is. And yet, you know, if I'm if I'm home for dinner with my kids, I'm thinking about that to-do list and the emails that are stacking up. You know, so I'm now, you know, I'm feeling stressed out about the work stuff. We need to solve that. And by solving it, it means really mastering your minutes, you know, designing your life in a big chunk. The biggest chunk is going to be career work. You know, uh, th that's a big chunk of it. But doing it mindfully and on purpose, getting our energy levels up so we can actually increase our productivity in the same or less amount of time. 
That's great. That's great, Kevin. I really like that uh, tie-in because it, it does. It does make a significant difference, and there's so much written about. Um, and I like that take on work-life blend versus balance. I think it's a much more accurate um, evaluation of what that, that art is. So listen, tell us uh, when and where we can get the book, 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management. Yeah, thanks, Joel. It, uh, anybody who's interested in the book will be able to pick it up, you know, bookstores, uh, Amazon.com, or there's a special website uh, where I'll send you a free paperback copy and online training if you just cover the uh, shipping and handling. And that website is 15timesecrets.com. It's the numbers 15timesecrets.com. Fantastic. And once again, we've been speaking with Kevin Cruz. Kevin's new book, The 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management, is available at Amazon, as he said. And I would encourage you to go look at some of his other books. Uh, Me to We is an excellent one, and also Employee Engagement 2.0, another good one to pick up. So, Kevin, thank you so much for taking time out today to share with us some of the secrets that you've worked so hard to uncover. Thanks, Joel.